We're here now in the book of Ezekiel, and uh, we're here in chapter 8 today. As as a way of just a little background before I read from chapter 8, the Babylonians have spent uh, the last 20 years besieging Judah, which is the southern kingdom of Israel. And in the course of those 20 years, they have been taking Jews captive the thousand-mile journey back to Babylon, deporting them back to Babylon. Among the captives taken in 597 BC was this guy, Ezekiel. His name in Hebrew is pronounced Yehezkel. His name is the Lord of Strength. And he's 25 years of age when he's taken captive by the Babylonians, deported to Babylon along with thousands of other Jews. Five years into his new life in Babylon, at the age of 30, the Lord appears to him. And the Lord calls him to be a prophet to the Jewish people now living in Babylon. So they've established their lives now there. Those who have been deported to Babylon, they have established their lives there. In fact, when the opportunity comes for them to return to their homeland 70 years later, those who are still alive or the next generation after them, most will refuse to go back to Israel uh, because they become so absorbed in the culture of Babylon that they decide to stay there. Ezekiel has been called to prophesy to minister to the Jews living there in Babylon at the same time that Jeremiah was called by God as a prophet to minister to the Jews living still in Judah. So God's got his prophets going in both locations. And um, Ezekiel ministers there in in the Babylonian territory. And we're talking on a map today, modern Iraq, uh, the ancient capital city of the Babylonian empire, Babylon, located right on the Euphrates River. So that's where this is taking place. The exception here is that in chapter 8, God um, does not physically take Ezekiel back to Jerusalem, but he takes Ezekiel to Jerusalem with a vision. And Ezekiel is going to be shown things by God of what is happening back in his hometown. And so that's what we're about to read here in chapter 8. And you have to bear in mind, as we're also looking through Ezekiel, the first 24 chapters of Ezekiel are written prior to the destruction of Jerusalem about the destruction of Jerusalem. So that doesn't happen until 586 BC, but he's first deported there in 597 BC. So the first 24 chapters of this book of Ezekiel have to do with the coming destruction of Jerusalem. Chapters 25 to 27 have to do with the actual destruction, and then chapters 28 to the end of the book have to do with future things. We talked last week, future things that haven't even yet happened in our lifetime. And so we're going to get to some prophetic stuff still at the end of the book of Ezekiel. But for the time being, here in chapter 8, God shows him this vision about things that really are going to help Ezekiel understand, help us to understand, excuse me, Uh, What contributed to the demise of Jerusalem and why it was that God chose to discipline his own people that he loved so much by some of the things we see revealed here in chapter 8. So I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's only 18 verses, so don't let that, you know, wig you out. You're like, he's going to read a whole chapter. It's all right. Sit back, relax. You have no place to go. It's raining. I'm going to read all of uh, of chapter 8. So here we go. And it came to pass... In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, that the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. And then I looked, and there was a likeness like the appearance of fire, from the appearance of his waist and downward fire. 
and from his waist and upward, like the appearance of brightness, like the color of amber. Then he stretched out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my hair, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God, see, not literally, but brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the door of the north gate of the inner court where the seat of the image of jealousy was, which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there like the vision that I saw in the plain. And then he said to me, Son of man, lift your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted my eyes toward the north, and there, north of the altar gate, was this image of jealousy in the entrance. We'll talk about what that is in a minute. And furthermore, he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing, the great abominations that the house of Israel commits here to make me go far away from my sanctuary? Now turn again, you will see greater abominations. So he brought me to the door of the court. And when I looked, there was a hole in the wall. And then he said to me, Son of man, dig into the wall. And when I dug into the wall, there was a door. And he said to me, go in and see the wicked abominations which they are doing there. So I went in and saw, and there, every sort of creeping thing, abominable beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel, portrayed all around on the walls. And there stood before them 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel. And in their midst stood Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan. Each man had a censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. And then he said to me, Son of man, have you, seen, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark, every man in the room of his idols? For they say, the Lord does not see us, the Lord has forsaken the land. And he said to me, turn again, and you will see greater abominations that they are doing. So he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house, and to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. And then he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Turn again, and you will see greater abominations than these. So he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house, and there at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, and they were worshiping the sun toward the east. And he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Is it a trivial thing to the house of Judah to commit the the abominations which they commit here? For they have filled the land with violence, and then they have returned to provoke me to anger. Indeed, they put the branch to their nose. That's another way we would say today they thumb their nose. So they're, they're thumbing their nose at God. And therefore, I also will act in fury. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice... I will not hear them. So we're going to make sense of all this. I know it's a bit of a, uh, the whole book we talked last week, a bit of an enigma, it kind of baffles the mind, but we're going to unpack this chapter today and it'll make more sense as we go. Let's first have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word today and I thank you for each person here and those watching online. We do pray for you to visit us in a personal way that you would translate an ancient story in, in a way that is helpful to us, Lord, that we might grow in our own relationship with you through, through the knowledge and understanding of your word. So, Lord, thank you for ministering to us through the pages of Scripture. Do your good work in our hearts today. Help us to be receptive to what you would want us to learn. 
And we love you and we thank you that you first loved us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everybody said, Amen. So when this chapter opens up, Ezekiel writes here about this occasion when he is in Babylon. Now that's where he's living. He's in his own house in Babylon, and he's in the living room of his house with some of the elders of Judah who have been deported with him from Jerusalem. And there they are just having a casual afternoon together, sitting in his living room, sipping iced tea, eating Chick-fil-A, because that's what Christians do. And, um, and all of a sudden, as he's with these guests of his in his own house, the Lord gives him a vision. This is all a vision now. This is not, he was not like physically transported to Jerusalem. Because he says specifically in verse 3 that the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem. So it's not literal. This is a vision that God is giving him. And, and God lifts him up in this vision between heaven and earth to give him a bird's eye view of Jerusalem. And in particular, what we note in chapter 8 is he's going to give him a bird's eye view of the temple court area. Uh, because at this time, the temple's not been destroyed. It's prior to 586 BC. So he sees the temple of Jerusalem there, the temple of God. He sees the courtyard area and God shows him different things. So that Ezekiel gets a better understanding as to why God is just in bringing his judgment against the people whom he loves. He's going to allow the Babylonians to come as a form of disciplining the people that he loves. And so, in a sense, what he is saying to Ezekiel is, come with me, I want to show you some things that are going on here in Jerusalem. You get a better idea of why I'm about to do what I'm about to do. The first thing that Ezekiel sees here when he's kind of lifted up and given this bird's eye view of Jerusalem is in verse 3, what is called here the image of jealousy. He says, I saw the image of jealousy. That phrase is used twice there. And it's an idol. It's a particular idol. And it provokes jealousy with God. You know, listen, God even listed one of the Ten Commandments as commandment number two about not having any other idols. And in fact, he, he says there in Exodus 20 verse 5, when he lists commandment number two about no other idols, he says, for the Lord your God is a jealous God. Now he's not insecure. He, he, he just despises the fact that people would give their attention and affection to inanimate objects, things that can't help them, things that don't work for them, things that don't love them. It's, it's really a, a, a travesty and it's a commentary on man's desire to worship something, even if it's the ridiculous worship of something that isn't even real. And God is jealous about it. He, he is provoked to jealousy over this kind of nonsense. And so here's this idol and, and Ezekiel sees it. And what we come to find out is that it's a particular idol with a name. Uh, here in, in this eighth chapter, you may have noticed in verse 14, let me read it again in verse 14. It says, so he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house, and to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. Now, circle in your Bible, Tammuz, that's the name of this idol. That's the name of a god of the Babylonians back in this day that the Babylonians worshipped. And Ezekiel here is appalled. He is dismayed to see that Jewish women in Jerusalem are weeping in their worship of Tammuz. Uh, the, the name Tammuz only appears here in all of the Bible. Uh, there's no other reference to him by name than right here. This is the only place. Who was Tammuz? 
So Tammuz was a Babylonian god, a mythological Babylonian god they thought was real. And he was the god of life and vegetation. And so they believed that all green things and life and vegetation were attributed to Tammuz. But that every fall at the end of summer, Tammuz died. And that's why the vegetation would die. You know, when we hit the season of fall, things start to die. It's just, it's just the season of, of, of life, and it's the rotation of the seasons. And God is the Lord of the seasons. But unfortunately, at this time, the Jewish people were persuaded to believe in the Babylonian gods and the gods of the Canaanites and other gods. And so the women are believing that Tammuz, oh, it's fall, and, and things are dying. And there was this myth that every fall, Tammuz would die and have to be revived. And that's why vegetation died. And, and so the women are weeping about this. Now, this does coincide with the season because at the beginning of chapter 8, Ezekiel actually gives us the timeline. And when you translate when he says this occurred, according to the Babylonian calendar, it would have been September the 17th, 592 BC. And so it's fall time. Things are dying and decaying. And the Jewish women in Jerusalem are weeping. Oh, Tammuz is dying. And the Babylonian myth was that he would die, go to the underworld, and then his wife, Ishtar, would have to rescue him every year. And she would bring him back to life in the springtime, which is when everything would bud and blossom. And so they're like, hooray, Ishtar has saved Tammuz again. That's the way they would worship. Now, how pitiful is this? How pitiful is this? That the God you worship dies every year and has to be revived by his wife. I mean, what if one year before Tammuz dies, they get into a fight? And Ishtar's like, didn't like your attitude, not bringing you back. I mean, what kind of a God is reliable like that? Where he's, he has to be brought back because his wife b- revives him. And so then they would worship the spring and, and Ishtar and all this. So listen, this is all nonsense. And, and, and Ezekiel is seeing this. He said, oh, the women are weeping. This is so sad. The Jewish women are weeping over Tammuz because it's fall time and things are dying. And so he's grieved by this. What kind of a God is worth serving who, who dies every year and has to be revived? Well, then Ezekiel sees something else here. If you'll notice again in verse 15 and 16, verse, verse 15, God says to him, and have you seen this? Like, you know, in other words, like, if you think that's bad, get a load of this. And in verse 16, So he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. And there at the door of the temple of the Lord between the porch and the altar were about 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east. And they were worshiping the sun toward the east. So again, here's something else that Ezekiel sees as part of this vision. God is pulling back the curtain of Jerusalem. He says, Ezekiel, I want you to see what's going on here among your own people. This is the reason why I'm going to destroy Jerusalem. This is the reason why you're in Babylon, that I've put Jews there captive for 70 years as a timeout to make them realize, you got to get your act right, you got to get right with me. And Ezekiel sees here 25 men in the temple courtyard area, backs to the temple, facing east to the rising sun, and they're literally, verse 16, worshiping the sun. Now, some of you come close, you know, you know how you are. You like to go to the beach, lather up, lay out there, oh, the sun god. But you're not really worshiping the sun, so I know. 
we just appreciate the sun and all that. They're actually worshiping the sun. I mean, they're, they're bowing down to the sun. They're seeing the sun as a literal god. And they've probably adopted this from the Egyptians. The Egyptians worship the sun god Ra. And so they are now worshiping the sun. And Ezekiel sees this. And, and he's grieved about this. Now, who are these 25 men? Based on the location... And based on the number, he says about 25, these are likely the priests. The priests, the spiritual leaders of the day, because they are located at the inner court of the Lord's house, which is the temple of God. And it tells us also in verse 16 that they are standing there between the porch and the altar. Okay, that's where priests would serve. And it says there were about 25 men that he sees. Well, 1 Chronicles 24 tells us that the priests who served at the temple would serve in rotations of 24 at a time. 24 at a time plus the high priest meant 25. So no doubt what Ezekiel is seeing here are the priests. Priests are worshiping the sun, S-U-N. They're worshiping the heavenly bodies instead of God himself. And not only was it wrong it was expressly forbidden as a capital offense in the mosaic law I'll read it to you you don't need to turn there but it's deuteronomy 17 and verse 3 god condemns any man or woman who has gone and served other gods and worshiped them either the the sun the moon or any of the host of heaven and then he adds in deuteronomy 17 verse 5 god says here's the penalty Then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has committed that wicked thing and shall stone to death that man or woman with stones. That's how much God was like, don't be doing this. Don't be doing this. This is a capital offense. Now, you are probably like I am glad that we live under grace now, right? Okay. But. I guarantee you, if people who are all into, you know, like their signs and, you know, they, you know, they get into the whole astrology thing, the worship of the stars and like, what's my sign? You know, what's my, if you were killed for that, you'd probably stop doing that kind of thing. You know, I'm not, I'm not advocating bringing it back. I'm just saying it was probably a great deterrent. These guys should have known better, but instead they've literally turned their back to God, to the temple and they're worshiping the sun here. And Not only was it wrong then for them to worship the creation instead of the creator, it's wrong now. It's wrong now for us to worship created stuff instead of the creator himself. And there is kind of this obsession today with just earthly worship. And look, I'm all about take care of the planet. It is something that we've been entrusted with, but it's like, Seriously? Carbon footprint? Really? I mean, all of this stuff? I, I recycle because I'm supposed to, but I don't want to. Like, I have an attitude about it. Whenever I drag my recycling to the curb, I'm like, why are we doing this? And have you heard recently that it's actually costing more money and it is less productive to recycle than if they just... Anyway, I go off and I digress. Back to the story. They've inverted this. It's, it's like, can you imagine if... Your mom makes you a sandwich and she gives you the sandwich and you're like, oh, you wonderful sandwich. Oh, I adore you. Thank you, sandwich. Oh, sandwich. Oh, all you ham. Oh, and you cheese. Oh, and you rye. 
well, if you're gluten-free, Mr. Udo's gluten-free bread. Oh, I thank you, thank you, thank you. I just love you sandwich. And your mom is standing there going like, uh, hello, could you just say thank you to me? I kind of made it. This is how we are when we worship what was made instead of the one who made it. God is the creator. And these are the spiritual leaders. So here's what you have. You have the women of Jerusalem worshiping and weeping over Tammuz. And you have the spiritual leaders, the men, the priests, turning their back on God and worshiping the sun. God's like, do you see what's going on here? Now, there's one more thing here that I want to spend the remainder of our time looking at that I skipped. If you go back to verse 7, I want to read verses 7 through 12 again. And this part applies to every single one of us. I want you to pay particular attention to this part between verses 7 through 12. Here's what it says. So he brought me to the door of the court. And when I looked, there was a hole in the wall. And then he said to me, son of man, dig into the wall. And when I dug into the wall, there was a door. And he said to me, go in and see the wicked abominations which they are doing there. So I went in and saw. And there, every sort of creeping thing, abominable beasts, and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed all around on the walls. And there stood before them 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel. And in their midst stood Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan, And each man had a censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. And then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the room of his idols. For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. There's a very important part in the middle of this chapter here that I I, I want us to focus on in our remaining time. Where is Ezekiel in this vision? And what is it that he's seeing? So in this vision, he's in the temple area here, the entrance to the temple court, and he sees a hole in the wall. And God says to him, go ahead. And, he, and he, you know, apparently maybe he, he looks through the hole, he, he can't see through the hole. God says to him, go ahead, I want you to start breaking the wall down at the point of that hole. So Ezekiel's trying to peer into something that is, at this point, not visible. God says, go ahead, tear down the wall. Ezekiel tears down the wall, and when he does that, he comes to a door. Again, this is all a vision, that, because in the courtyard, there was not a hole that he had to tear down a wall in order to get through a door. This is, all, this is symbolic. He, God is taking him to a place that is otherwise hidden. And he's going to reveal something to Ezekiel. So he gives Ezekiel permission. Go ahead, break the wall down at the point of this hole. And then he does that. And then there's this door. He says, now I want you to walk through the door. And he goes through the door in this vision. And he comes into this inner chamber. This inner chamber. And Ezekiel says that he he sees. I want you to picture just kind of like a, a gallery, like an art gallery in the round. He sees in this chamber, he sees pictures hanging on the wall all around this gallery. And they're abominable pictures. They're impure pictures, terrible things, creatures, impure stuff. And he sees all this. And in verse 9 says, wicked abominations hanging on the wall, creeping things, abominable beasts, idols. In the middle of this otherwise unseen dark chamber are 70 men. Now this is symbolic of something. 
Okay, 70 is symbolic for the general population. You get into the New Testament, you have the 70 men who formed the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a representation of the people. They were the Jewish ruling council. So the 70 men in this imagery represents the general population. Okay, and he sees 70 men in the middle of this dark chamber, detestable images hanging on the wall, these pictures all around, and God is showing Ezekiel something that is otherwise not revealed, hidden, behind closed doors, which is where most detestable things happen. Behind closed doors, in the secret inner chamber here. And again, in verse 12, God says to him, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the room of his Idols. Now, if you have a King James Bible, we're reading New King James, but King James helps us understand even better what is going on here. King James, instead of saying in the room of his idols, it translates in the chambers of his imagery. In the chambers. Every man in the dark, in the chambers of his imagery. God takes Ezekiel here to a hidden place. A place behind walls and doors. A place that Ezekiel is allowed to peer into. And the imagery and the language here suggests to us that this hidden place, this dark place behind closed doors, is none other than the secret places of the heart and the mind. When Ezekiel finally breaks through the wall in this vision that he has, and he goes through the door, he comes into a room And in this room are hanging pictures of all kinds of vile and detestable things. In other words, God has allowed Ezekiel to peer into the gallery of the minds of the people. Where on the walls are hanging perverted, impure, detestable images. And God is basically saying to him, this is where it all starts. In the dark recesses of the mind is where sinful behavior is generated. You know, the people were into idolatry, but they were into idolatry because they believed things and thought things and considered things and entertained things in their mind. Most of our sinful behavior is premeditated. We think about it first. We fantasize about it first. In the dark recesses of our mind where we think no one else can see, No one else knows. No one else hears. We entertain impure things, detestable things, vile things, that if anybody knew, we'd be embarrassed. If anybody knew the kind of thoughts that all of us entertain, we'd be embarrassed. Can you imagine? Well, consider, God knows. Why should we allow our minds to go unchecked? Some Christians are of the opinion that as long as I don't act on something I'm thinking, it's okay for me to think it. Wrong. Because even our minds should be sanctuaries to God. Even our thought life should be reined in to a place where it's honorable to God. What we think and what we imagine and what we entertain in our minds will either be pleasing to God or displeasing to Him. It will either be honorable to God or dishonorable to God. And we need to make sure that we understand the necessity and the importance that not only is action something that God looks at and considers, but also our thoughts. We must harness 
our thought life. Have you ever thought to yourself, if I could just rein in my thoughts, if I could just get control of my thought life, it would help me to not do some of the stupid things and sinful things I end up doing. And it's true for all of us. But see, we must not be deceived. We must not deceive ourselves into what the people thought. If you look at verse 12, the people thought to themselves in verse 12, the Lord does not see us. You know, it's okay, the things that, in, the, in the dark places. But see, God, God sees all this, and, and God's showing Ezekiel. Do you see some of the stuff going on in the dark inner chambers of their imaginations? Do you see this? This is where it all started. All the idolatry, all the rebellion, all of their sinful stuff starts there in the dark recesses of their minds. And he's showing Ezekiel these things. And it should challenge all of us. Because they were deceiving themselves, saying, the Lord doesn't see, the Lord doesn't know. You know, what's interesting is among, in this inner dark chamber, there's 70 men representing the people in general. But there's one guy named, by name, Jazaniah, right there in verse 11. One guy among the 70. Why is this guy named here among all the people here? Who is this guy, the son of Shaphat? Well, I think he's mentioned here because it's a play on words with his name. See, his name, Jazaniah, there's no J in the Hebrew alphabet. It's Yazaniah. Yazaniah is from two words, Yah, meaning Yahweh, and Azan, which means to hear. And it literally means the Lord hears. And even more specifically, Azan translates to, to broaden the ear with the hand. So it's this. You know how when you cup your hand behind your ear because you're trying to listen more intently. That's the picture revealed in the name of this guy. Yazaniah, the Lord is straining with a cupped hand because he hears every single thing that we entertain in our thoughts. In the midst of this dark chamber where everybody's like, God doesn't see what's going on. God says, I want you to go in, Ezekiel. I want you to see all the imagery here. I want you to see all the vile, detestable things. I see and I hear everything. Nothing is hidden from God. Nothing. And so this is a good place for us to consider these things, even as it relates to our own lives. David would say in Psalm 139, 1 and 2, he said, Oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You perceive my thoughts from afar. I'm going to give you real quickly three things about God's understanding of our thoughts and then three things about what we need to do to harness our thought life. Here's the first one for you note takers. God knows our thoughts. The Bible tells us clearly, Psalm 94 verse 11, the Lord knows the thoughts of man. And there are different times in, in, your, in the Gospels, in the New Testament, where it says that Jesus knew their thoughts. Jesus knew their thoughts. Matthew 9, Matthew 12, Luke 9, Luke 11. God knows what we're thinking. Okay, nothing is hidden from God. He knows everything about us, including our thought life. He knows what we're thinking. I came across this this thing years ago. Some of you have probably seen this too. It's this, and in fact, Austin said that it was first aired as a Super Bowl commercial. I don't remember where where I first saw it, but you can Google it. It's online. It's this funny little scene where there's this... uh, um, it opens up with uh, two guys who are speaking German, and you find out that it's the German Coast Guard. And there's this new recruit, 
uh, into the Coast Guard. And, um, and he's sitting behind a desk at the Coast Guard station, ready to hear any distress calls. And it's, it's his first day on the job. His commanding officer says something to him in German, slaps him on the back and leaves the room. And this, this young guy, new to the whole thing, is sitting here uh, behind the radio, waiting for anything and just kind of biding his time. And all of a sudden, a distress call comes in. And it's in English. And, and, and there's, this, there's this guy on the radio who's saying, uh, help us, help us, mayday, mayday, mayday. And, and so he taps the microphone and he's like, this, this is the German Coast Guard. Can I help? And he's like, yes, mayday, mayday. We are sinking, we are sinking. And he goes, what are you sinking about? <laughs> it's hilarious. You got to Google it. But anyway, I don't do it justice. Trust me, God knows what you are thinking about. He knows everything about our lives, including what's in our minds. He knows our thought life. Second thing it's important to know. Number two, God tests our minds. Psalm 7 verse 9 says, For the righteous, God tests the hearts and minds. So sometimes he's going to see how well you do with your thought life by testing us. Number three, God examines our minds. Jeremiah 17, 10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. So God knows our thoughts. God tests our minds. God examines our minds. Nothing is hidden from him. He understands our thought life completely, which is all the more reason why we need to make sure that it's another area of our lives that we devote to him, commit to him, consecrate to him, our thought life. So how do we do that? Three things. Number one, we need to renew our minds with the word. We need the Bible to constantly be washing over our our thought life. I mean, listen, folks. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that living in our culture, we are inundated with information. And some of that information is just terrible. It's depressing. It's impure. Uh, it's it's um, not true. And so we're constantly being bombarded with just information, information. We're on information overload. And, and, and you know what it creates often? It creates all kinds of terrible thoughts. From impure, wicked, lustful thoughts to anxious thoughts, fearful thoughts, um, uh, jealous thoughts, uh, resentful thoughts, critical thoughts. I mean, it starts in our head, friends. The, the mind is a battleground. It, we can't get lazy about this. We have to realize that, that in the dark recesses of our minds, we can't just entertain stuff and think, no big deal, as long as I don't act on it, it's just in my head, and I can think on this, fantasize about it, dwell about it. No, not, not if it's impure, not if it's unholy, not if it's something that is unrighteous and dishonoring to God. We, we have to renew our minds by allowing the Bible to just read our Bibles, let it wash over our thought life. To renew our minds. Paul would say in Ephesians 4, 22 to 23, that you put off the old man and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that word renew, in, in, in Romans 12, 2, it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That word renew is anachinosis. And anachinosis means to renovate. So those of you understand this idea, 
who love HGTV. Because you see those people come in there, they take some old dilapidated house and they totally just gut the whole thing and then they renovate it. That's the idea here. When we become Christians, we got to gut our minds. We got to stop thinking the same thoughts we used to think. We got to stop entertaining some of the things we used to entertain. We have to stop fantasizing about some of the stuff we used to fantasize about. We have to gut our minds. It needs to be completely renovated. And we do that renovation by getting into the Word of God and letting Scripture just begin to bathe our minds, purify our thought life. The Word of God, Hebrews 4, verse 12 says, For the Word of God is living and powerful. And it adds at the end, and it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So we need the Word of God to just wash over our minds, to renew our minds with God's Word. Number two, this is also very important, we have to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Take captive every thought. This is exactly what 2 Corinthians 10.5 says. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. What does that mean? That means when you know the thought has come into your mind that isn't holy, righteous, honorable, you have to just immediately take a captive and say, I'm not, gonna, I'm not going there. You know, as, as soon as it comes into your head, you're like, I can't dwell on that. Not going to think about that. Not going there. Because I know it dishonors God. And again, it's not just the wicked, sinful, terrible thoughts. It can also be just those anxious thoughts. I'm not going to dwell on this. It, it just causes me to be anxious. That, that is an honoring to God. I'm not, going to be, I'm not going to dwell on this. Fearful thoughts. All right? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I guarantee you, at some point, every single one of us have been scared out of our minds because of stuff we thought. All right? And what is the way that you try to deal with that if you don't do what we're talking about here? You Google. That's what you do. Like, I'm really scared about this. I don't really like this. I've got this wart on my arm, and I don't know what that could be. And, and it could be this, and it could be that. And so you start to Google, and then that just makes you freaked out even more. Am I right? That doesn't help. Because you can Google anything, and it's going to tell you that you have cancer. I mean, I'm serious. It's just going to be, oh, no. You know, I just... I inhaled some baking powder making cookies, and um, maybe I'll Google, baking powder cause cancer. Of course somebody's going to say, yeah, baking powder cause cancer for me. It's like, it, it just stop Googling, right? If nobody else is listening, I'm trying to preach to myself. All right, here we go. <laughs> David is no different. David in Psalm 13, too, he says, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts? You ever felt like that? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? But there are some thoughts that we need to take captive. Some of you have critical thoughts. All you ever think about somebody is critical, unloving, resentful, bitter, jealous. It's all here. We can't, we can't allow it. We have to take captive every thought, make it obedient to Christ. Last one, number three. We have to set our minds on spiritual things. Romans 8, 5 to 6. For those who live according to the flesh meaning our natural sinful bent, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. How many of you want a little bit more peace in your life? All right, five of you. Ah, 
it's a rainy day and you're already like, I'm hungry. How much longer are you going to be? All right. But listen, listen to me on this. Take that thought captive right now. Take that thought captive. I want lunch. How long is it going to be? Take it captive. To set our minds on something, the Greek word is phroneo. It means to rein it in. We got to rein in the thoughts of the flesh. We have to replace it with things that are spiritual. Think about the things of the Spirit. Peter would write in his epistle, 1 Peter 1.13, he says, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. And I like that. That's a little old English. ESV and NIV try to clean it up and they, and they, they butcher it. ESV and NIV says, prepare your minds for action. Listen, there's a reason why Peter said, gird your loins, the loins of your mind. It is a Greek word, anazanumi. Anazanumi, zanumi means to bind with a belt. It's, it's, an, it's a, the image of back in the day when they had long tunics. You couldn't walk very fast, let alone run, unless you reached down, pulled up the hem of your garment, and then tucked it into your belt, so now you had more mobility. I mean, those of you ladies who wear long dresses or long skirts, ever try to run in one? I mean, it's like impossible. You're going to trip. So what do you do? You like, you like reach down and pull it up at least about six or eight inches so you can, you know, be more mobile and run. The idea behind that language when Paul says, gird up the, uh, sorry, Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind. He's basically saying, pull up your thoughts or they will cause you to stumble. Pull up your thoughts or they will cause you to stumble. And so here's, here's what we need to do. We need to saturate our minds with spiritual things. I'm going to, give, I'm going to read you this verse. It's, it's on the screen, just the reference, Philippians 4.8. I'm going to read it, and, I, and I'm going to ask everybody. I've said this in the other two services. I want you this week to commit to read Philippians 4.8. I want you to do it every day because all of us, unless you're feeling like, I, my thought life is fine, talk to me after the service. I'd love to touch the hem of your garment. But... For the rest of us, Philippians 4, 8. This is important to just saturate our minds. Listen to what it says. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Meditate on these things. So I want us as a congregation to just immerse our thoughts and our minds. You can read any of Scripture, but I want you to particularly Philippians 4, 8 this week. And ask God to help us to really think on things that are true and noble and just and pure and lovely and of a good report and virtuous and praiseworthy. And get rid of all the other thoughts that are displeasing to God. Take captive those thoughts. Make it obedient to Christ. Renew your mind with Scripture. Think on spiritual things. And in that process, friends, we're going to glorify God, not just in the way we act, but even by the way we think. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. And we acknowledge that you know our thoughts. You examine our thoughts. You test our thoughts. So Lord, help us to renew our mind in Christ Jesus. Help us to take captive every thought. Help us, Lord, to saturate our minds with things that are spiritual, not things that are carnal, not things that are impure, so that our lives would glorify you, even including our thought life. Help us, Lord, to not think to ourselves, 
that you must be unconcerned about what, what we entertain in our minds. May all of us, all of ourselves, from the top of our heads to the bottom of our feet, physically, spiritually, emotionally, be consecrated to you. Be dedicated to you. So that you're glorified, not just in what we do or what we say, but even in what we think. Help us, Lord, to harness our thought life for the glory of God. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen and amen. God bless you all.